The 10th of December marks the end of the 16 days of activism. The theme for this year was moving from awareness to accountability. We're chatting online to Matthew Duplessis, who is Cape Town based. Matthew is a human rights lawyer who has been trying to find effective ways to uphold rights in both the private and public sector for over a decade now. After spending his initial legal years in civil society and the private sector, he has now been a senior legal officer at the South African Human Rights Commission for six years, a time in which his understanding of the human rights landscape of South Africa has changed beyond his expectations. Welcome, youngish man. How are you, Matthew? Thank you, man. <laughs> Matthew, it's lovely to have you with us. So, just by way of, um, of introduction, you and I have worked uh, together on, on cases. And I think as a starting point, I, I quite like the idea of just framing for people the basic rights of children in our constitution and why those are important. So the case we worked on specifically was a case of, a case of what I call ghost children. So those are children whose first right is not met, the right to name a nationality from birth. And in addition to that, as a result, cannot access other rights. And in the case we dealt with, didn't even live in a place that had street names and numbers, so we couldn't find them. So what is the importance of Article 28 for us as duty bearers and the development of children? Look, Section 28 of the Constitution sets out the rights of children. And, and it also it has a unique section in it that it sets out a, a constitutional principle, specifically that principle that... In all matters involving the child, the best interests of that child are paramount. Um, and I think that is the framing basis of that section and of, of possibly one of the most important rights sections in, in our Bill of Rights. Um, and the importance of it, I don't know, it, it can't be overstated, but it also can't be overstated the extent to which that section has just not found credence and it, it hasn't found proper application. In South Africa, um, I know it, it sounds it sounds incredibly negative, and it also sounds like we're ringing the same old bell here. But but it's true. It, it is uh, it is an unfortunate reality. That, that in theory, what Section Twenty Eight sets out to do is to is to be create a country that improves generationally, as opposed to what happened before, a country that was devolving generation by generation. We had a government that. That on a generational scale was uh, was bringing down and 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 controlling and and clamping down on the majority of its citizenry, um, and that that had a generational effect. Whereas each generation got worse because your father and mother were poor, so you were poor, and then you had children and they were poor, and it it kept going worse down the generations to the point where we just had massive, and we still have today, obviously massive informal settlements, massive levels of, of poverty and crime. And I think Section 28 re recognized one of, those, uh, one of those realities by saying that, look, if we want to turn the tide on this, um, and, and apart from just having the general, the, the general humane reaction of, well, children need to be protected, I think it had a, a, a higher societal goal in it as well, is that we want the future to look bright. We have to we have to focus on our children. I think many many of the adults who are who are alive in South Africa today um, are are in a are in a spiral that they might not get out of. But at the least, we could try save our children, and I think that was the inspiration behind it. And so, Section Twenty Eight sets out then that children have got the right 
to a basic education and to proper care and to food and water and sanitation. It basically sets out that, that a child should be able to have a, deg- a dignified life, a life that gives them a chance and a fair opportunity, um, as opposed to the generations of children who came before, that they would have a fair opportunity to, to make a good life for themselves. And fortunately, as, as you and I know too well, Luke, that for a number of reasons that has not become the reality. Um, there's legislation has been drafted um, in light of Section 28, the Children's Act specifically. And that also sets out, in, in theory, a, a great number of, of fantastic mechanisms which we've seen in practice work very well at times. But we also know that because, I think, because the fundamental promise of Section 28 has not been met by our our government and by our populace, that the, the mechanisms that we put in place in terms of legislation like the Children's Act, they also fail to function effectively. And um, I don't know, it's a, it's a problem that keeps me up at night. But anyway, that, that might be one of them. No, absolutely. And I think that the one thing we, we've seen is, you know, you get this sort of Hegelian pendulum that happens where, you know, you get this argument by um, you know, certain sectors of the population that, oh, look, children have got all these rights and all the rights of adults are being removed. And, you know, why are, why are children allowed, for example, rights to sexual expression where adults are not allowed kind of what they consider their biblical right to um, corporal punishment? And the, the thing I'm... I'm I'm looking at at the moment and wanting your thoughts on is I'm of the opinion at the moment that without, and this was the case you and I dealt with in fact, without an adult duty bearing um, person who acts on behalf of children, and those are empowered people, this is not your average parent, you know, kind of in an informal settlement, children do not have agency to access their own rights. Would you agree with that? In most cases, that is definitely true. I think there, there are exceptions to that, exceptions that shouldn't have to exist. But, you know, we've, we've seen cases of child-headed households of brave, brave young boys and girls fighting the odds, um, you know. But, I mean, the, those, those are st- stories that in and of themselves are a travesty. And, um, but as in most cases, as near as makes no difference, in all cases, children are not capable of... Uh, of upholding their own rights to the extent that is required, especially not in the complex systems that exist today. Um, if, if the systems were more easily accessible and worked better, then maybe there were some, you know, there's some places that children could find agency. Um, as, as you're suggesting, should be the case. They should have some level of agency. I, I think you're suggesting that. Um, but, but the systems that we have in place now are so difficult to traverse that you know you need even even a even a grown educated person often needs the assistance of a lawyer or society expert to help them through the spider webs of this and, and for children that is beyond possible. And and I think your your comment around the child headed household for me has always been an interesting one. Because in a human rights based culture, should a concept of a child headed household even exist? And then there's also this colloquial understanding of what a child-headed household is, which is, you know, sort of goes without the legal understanding that that is a household that has at least one person over the age of 16 that is supported by an adult in the community. Because a child, calling something a child-headed household for me intrinsically infringes on the other rights of children, like, for example, a right to education. 
And, you know, because you can work from 16, the idea is that, you know, a, a household can be headed from 16. But who realistically can find dignified, meaningful work at 16 to support a family? Surely that is a duty-bearing failure of our state. Now, now we're starting to <clears throat> we're, got, we're starting to to pull into the the employment sector and, and and the failures of the state in that regard, failures to to create and sustain safe uh, workplaces and work environments, failure to um, create a, a strong economy that 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 fosters that kind of of economic growth as well. So there, there's another shortage, another another reality that we face. The things may be slightly different as well if we had. A great working sector where even even young people could find themselves in dignified positions and, and ages, but that also is is not the case. So again, the the idea of a of a child headed household, as, as you said, there's a colloquial understanding of what that is, um, but in the vast majority of cases, that's not what a child headed household is. Mm-hmm. A child headed household is actually just a household that's been abandoned by a parent, exactly. with children slowly wasting away under a tin roof um that that's reality of what it is and there are many households that at least my definition of child-headed even if there is an adult um involved because you're either looking at at, at adults who are neglectful or against their own will just don't have the ability to look after the children because mm. they work three jobs to try and keep up so in reality the the, the, the household is headed by children and that mm. that case that you and i worked on on um, as well, we, we noted that the, the one vulnerable child in that was being was being cared for, and I, I use quotation marks there by his mm. siblings, who were all very young, mm. and um, there was there were levels of abuse happening there um, between between the children because there, there was there wasn't an adult around to um, you know to regulate what was going on. Mm. So that that was in effect most of that household was child headed mm. throughout the day was. It was child-headed, and, and, and the children involved had no access mm. to dignity and and to opportunities. And it, it took it took exceptional measures. It would have it would have given me some hope in that in that case. And we can go into a little bit more detail about it on the facts as well, if you like. Mm. But um, it, it, if there were proper systems in place, and, and if all it took was um, you know an, a nice report from from the Department of Social Development or, mm. or Home Affairs and then there was relief to some extent. That would have been great. But those departments had been involved there for years. Yeah. And they were aware of that family and they'd done nothing, nothing to improve the situation. In fact, they just caused it to fluctuate and, and possibly worsen. Mm. And it, it took it took some really out of the box thinking and acting, some stuff that unfortunately is unsustainable. You couldn't not think that you could do on a large scale. That's what it took to try and turn the tide. And uh, no, the ending to that story was was coincidentally tragic in any case. So um, that one put a. It took me a while to get over what happened there in the end. Yeah. So so that brings me to sort of a, a thinking a little bit about a, a way forward. You know, for me, there's there's this tendency we have to sanitize things with pretty words, such as child-headed household. You know, I mean, I just find the term a travesty. Plus the fact that people use it to sort of minimize the fact or ignore the fact, frankly, that those children were in fact abandoned, not not only by the parents and, you know, to some extent the community who were severely resource sort of limited, but they were abandoned by the state essentially as well. Because all of the all of the promises under Article 28 were just simply not uh, not afforded them, 
And you and I had a discussion about children being a designated group and how that may improve their plight. Can you just explain to our listeners what that might mean? Ooh, yes. Well, this, this is all a little bit out of left field, but um, it, it, it's not something I mind talking about at all. It's, it is an interesting concept every time you and I have discussed. Uh, it's, it's definitely piqued my interest. And um, it, it comes from the foundational idea um, around equality in South Africa. Now, I'm not saying that South Africa has addressed equality the right the right way. And we can get into this in a bit more detail later if you'd like as well. I think we, there are... are, are a fundamental capitalistic clause in the way that our our law addresses equality, but um, the the one way that it does it correctly is by preventing discrimination on the basis of um, prohibited grounds. So our constitution states that that everyone has the right to equality, but most specifically, there's this negative duty on the state and individuals not unfairly discriminate against people on the basis of a certain prohibited grounds. So it sets out the grounds upon which you may not be discriminated against, including race, ethnicity, gender. It's a, it's a long list of, of, usually we're talking about immutable characteristics. Um, and then it, there's also a provision in there under prohibited grounds that it, it, called the any other ground section. And it states that, so you can't be uh, discriminated on against, on any other ground that impairs on dignity and uh, shows a systemic level of disadvantage, because obviously the drafters of our constitution knew that it, it, you couldn't create a closed list mm. of things that you should sure. be discriminated against on. Sure. And an example of that is the HIV status, for example, mm. wasn't, uh, that wasn't listed. But, you know, the constitution was drafted in the early 90s. The ideas of it were, were, were banded around in the late 80s. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the HIV awareness hadn't gotten to, to where it would eventually get. And uh, that's a HIV status wasn't uh, specifically put place there. But then the Equality Act, for example, was then uh, updated and amended uh, through ju- judicial action and, uh, you know, groups putting pressure to then specifically include HIV. Mm. As you know, So that, that's one example. Not that you need to have a specific clause inserted recognize that you can still just use the any other grounds, although it's it's rarely used. Mm. And our argument or, or, or theory was that could we not place children as a prohibited ground or, or, or your, because age is a prohibited ground, by mm. the way. You can't, you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of age unfairly. Mm. Obviously, we discriminate on the basis of age all the time. You need to be a certain age to drink, to drive, to own a firearm, to Vote, but those are all justifiable limitations for, you know, reasons that can be discussed in other. Um, but that the age limitation is not that's not specific to children. That usually has to do with with elderly persons. Mm. We we said that specifically there should be um, a uh, a section for children, or at least that being a prohibited ground, because we we've identified at the very least. That there is a systemic pattern of disadvantage that affects children exclusively, or at least uh, affects children disproportionately to a level that is that is undeniable, mm-hmm. and um, that it is an identifiable ground. It is it's an immutable characteristic. You can't choose whether you're a child or not. Mm-hmm. Um, there are inherent built-in vulnerabilities uh, to being a child, 
And for, for all those reasons, it seems as though it should be a prohibited ground. And if it were, if it were, then there's so many other options potentially available to children because um, we could we could identify then what discrimination is because if we look at the Constitution to see what discrimination is, it's more than just differential treatment. It's um, policies and practice and conduct that end up in different outcomes. Not not that equality of outcome is is supposed to guarantee for all, but most certainly what needs to be prevented is policies that ensure different outcomes mm. for people based on immutable characteristics. Mm. And there are policies that ensure different outcomes if you are a child and worst outcomes. But you will have a harder time accessing justice as a child if you want to testify against a person who has abused you sexually, physically, emotionally in court. As a child, you face different rules and, and, and we, we would submit rules that not as efficient and uh, in obtaining justice, then again, the, the child-headed household thing, which as, as you say is a misnomer, I use the word loosely, and in, when I say child-headed household, I also, I don't see the, I, I don't see the, the euphemism on, of it. I, I sure. see you adult see the abandoned. Reality of it, <laughs> yeah, the, the reality, they're an adult abandoned household, they're not a child-headed household, because that, that assumes inherently that the child is, that it's being-headed. And mm-hmm. that it's, it's somehow effective, which obviously is the um, And the the different outcomes that children are faced with as a result of being children, as a result of not having access or the same level of access to the system, I think results in an actual form of discrimination against children. Now, it's a legal concept that I think could be fleshed out more. Absolutely. But I, I honestly think that that uh, the, the children's court could take a look at something like that and and, and the High Court as well. Um, maybe the Children's Commission in the Western Cape might want to look at it, although, although their, their, their jurisdiction is quite provincial. But many things start at a provincial level and then spread upwards. So yeah, I think that is a, it's a concept that we could definitely explore and it could find practical application in, in many cases. Uh, because the more causes of action you have to try and assist uh, the better. And another thing, and this is one of the problems I find with the country as well, is is that everything is over politicised. Unfortunately, mm. um, uh, we have the rule of law and, and constitutionalism as as a pretty good fallback, but very often it doesn't reach that point because issues become politicised and stories become taken in for political gain. And you'll have political parties and politically minded people taking in the direction they think is best for their voter base, 100%. and um, but if, if you could if you could put discrimination mm-hmm. in there, uh, it it, re- it removes a lot of the politicking because it creates a clear legal route uh, for relief. Mm-hmm. Matthew, there's so much sadness. So you know we see children still in this day and age falling in pit latrines. We see children falling down into um, sewers because there are no manhole covers. So there's so many things that put our children at such great risk. Is there hope? Are we moving forward in any way at all? Not at the moment, I don't think. Um, I, I think that, well, the lockdown has had a, a severely negative effect. If, if we were making any progress, a lot of it has been... Um, a lot of the progress that you make with regards to children is tied to economic prosperity. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, UNICEF re- released a report 
uh, on the lockdown. And it was kind it, it tried to remain as neutral as possible. But what it basically said that was, as a result of the economic and social downturn created by lockdowns around the world, 1.5 million additional children would die around the world uh, in the year immediately preceding when the world started locking down. That was, for me, that was an absolutely terrifying statistic. First of all, it, it recognizes that millions of children just die every year. Mm. Um, obviously, un, un, unnatural causes and, and uh, starvation or increasing levels of crime and abuse. Um, and, and, I mean, I don't know if, if those statistics have actually come to bear um, on, the, on, on the predictions by, by UNICEF, but UNICEF is, uh, they're unfortunately usually right. Mm. Um, and it was very interesting that that article was released, also UNICEF as an arm of the United Nations, but it was very little, very little airtime. And instead what was pushed was the narrative of the World Health Organization, also mm. an arm of the United Nations, um, explaining the medical relevance and need for lockdowns. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to get into a, a long dispute about lockdowns because that's not really the question. But that, for me, <clears throat> showed just the level of challenge that children face mm. around the world. And, and I think South Africa is one of the countries that would have been disproportionately affected by that. That's just 20, 20, well, before the lockdown, 20 children starved to death in South Africa every day. Mm. We don't know what that statistic is now. <clears throat> after our economy took the hit that it did, and after after children were were taken out of school, and, mm. and you know many many children, millions millions of children got their only meal a day from the school they attended. So that number must have increased mm. to, to shocking. We'll, we'll see what it is as as further people are brave enough to do further studies and release them officially. All the evidence I see is that we might take one step forward, but then we take ten steps back mm. with our with our children um, and. This, the, the level of, of disadvantage that our children find themselves at is it's, it's so low that I can only see it, I can only see it getting lower. Um, because if children can't pull themselves out, if we can't pull children out mm. of the, 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 the figurative and literal holes that they are in, um, they're, they're just going to keep sinking deeper. So is there hope? I, I think so, but I think it's going to need a significant change in narrative and focus. But that happens. Mm. There's evidence throughout history and recent history of, of massive narrative change and, and focus on, on issues. But then that speaks to another problem I think we have in South Africa is that the narrative at the moment is not based on reality. As a country mm. with massive levels of inequality that we have, We've created a multi-tiered system of society where, where certain problems are elevated above others because we have people in certain economic and social strata that their voices are more heard. So, um, and and the, the lowest economic and social strata is occupied by children, so their voices are the least heard. Mm. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Karen, that is terribly negative. Answer, um, and Horrible. especially for people like us who are trying our best to help. But I think that, yeah, I think that the that the progress we make sometimes we make a few leaps and bounds forward. Mm. I think there's uh, a small degree small of comfort. Often, um, yeah, there are incredible people working really, really hard in this space. So, you know, we 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 all know them and we encounter them daily. And there's so much push to make things better. And with people like you. 
and Luke and Pippa Jarvis from TLC has put out a thing about stateless children today and it's been echoed by Bev Clark from Clark Attorneys and Dee Blackie is working so hard at all of these things. So there are exceptional people working really, really hard at it. And I would like to hope that at some point we'll be able to turn the tide and just really start caring for our children and really giving them not only what they, their rights are, but, but really what they deserve. I think you're 100% right about that because the narrative change that I was hoping for and, and talking about just a moment ago, if it's going to come from anywhere, that's where it's going to come from. Which mm -hmm. Our voices collectively and coalescing around this and eventually reaches critical mass and makes the change that needs to How exactly that's going to happen and when, I'm not sure. And if it's going to even happen, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. But what we could say at the very least is if our future looks incredibly bleak and, and children... The entire project like ours fails to a dismal extent. We can at least say that we were on the right side of history. Okay. And we did try. We did try our best. Um, I don't think it's going to get there. I do think that the narrative will change. I do think that we will save our children one day. Not but today, but. <laughs> Matthew, I think that's a brilliant way to end the 16 days because I think, you know, the, the aim of advocacy is to basically raise raise issues and to create some kind of script. So I think what I'm getting from our conversation today is, you know, that truly the best interest of children must be sort of paramount in our sort of lauded um, you know, constitutional democracy. But what seems to be missing for me as my closing thought for the narrative is that the best effort of adults does not seem to be meeting the best interests of children. So I thank you for your time and Thanks. we wish you well in your work and uh, however we can support and I know we do call on you often so for you to support us um, and I know you are a family of fighters for justice so yeah, uh, I hope your voices are heard in the 16 days and you can get that change of narrative to happen. Have a wonderful rest of your year. Matthew, thank you ever so much. We look forward to picking up this conversation again in January 2022 um, when we speak to Annalie Duplessis, I don't know if you know her, um, from the Johannesburg <laughs> yes, Child yes. Advocacy Forum, where we once again visit this issue with children needing to go to school. So we look forward to picking up the conversation in January. But, but thank you for fighting for our children and we wish you well. Thanks, Corin. Thanks, Luke. And thanks for the opportunity. It was, it was lots of fun talking to you, despite the, the grim topic. Thanks, Betty. Have a good one. Eh?